Mike, come out of that icebox. Mike, if you insist on using the telephone in here, I'd suggest you wear an overcoat. I know it's a great temptation, but you must control it. You control what? This playing at being a millionaire. Just because you're living in a millionaire's house, don't let it get you. Maybe I am a millionaire. <laughs> All right, Mike, you're a millionaire. Now, come on, you've got a million dishes to wash. Not with that, you might break them. Come on. Hi, everybody, I'm Mike. And I'm Dan. Welcome back to 15 Minute Film Fanatics. This one is a Mike pick. It's a Christmas movie. It's 1947's It Happened on Fifth Avenue, directed by Roy Del Ruth. I could not believe that Dan hadn't seen this movie. What happened was it was on TV and I was watching it. And I texted Dan, do you want to do It Happened on Fifth Avenue? Meaning, don't you know that Christmas movie that we all watch every single year? Uh, And he said, I've never seen it. And I thought he was messing with me. And he, you know, the one with the dog and the living in the house and blah, blah, blah. He was like, no, for real. I've never, I've never seen this movie. Uh, so Dan, I have kind of grown up with this movie. You saw it for the first time. I would really like to get your initial impression of this movie. I, I thought, I think it's weird. I think it's sprawling. For the first hour, I thought to myself, why is this a Christmas movie? And then they get the Christmas tree and there's a whole Santa Claus motif in it as well. The, the movie struck me as an ironic upstairs downstairs or as an ironic version of Downton Abbey because you have the be- upper, you have the be- below stairs folks and the above stairs folks. And in Downton Abbey, of course, you know, the drama is that there are these two separate worlds and every once in a while they might intersect, but the plot of one parallels the plot of another. Well, in this one, what's cool is that you have the downstairs people pretending to be the above stairs people and the above stairs people, because of the machination of, of Trudy O'Connor and her plot have to pretend to be below stairs people. So it's not, it's not the rich and the poor and uh, the gulf between them. It's, it's poor people pretending to be rich and, and imagine what that's like. And then rich people pretending to be poor and imagine what that's like. It's more like the forest of Arden, you know, yes, where, where people, people go into the house and lose their identity and gain one while they're, while they're in there. And some of that will be permanent. And some of that is, is impermanent. Yeah. Um, yeah. I agree with you that this movie has kind of like a force field around it. It, it won't tell you what it is. It's um, you don't often hear the phrase slow burn comedy, but this is a slow exactly burn comedy. You, you go, wait, what? And then people start to accumulate. And, and what, it, what it really is, is there's a, a whole plot device around Slumgullion, the Irish yes. stew. Yes. And that's what the house is, right? And, <laughs> and it starts off as like a pot of boiling water and then stuff gets added to it and it just kind of sits, you know, it, it just kind of sits and simmers for uh, what feels like a few hours, but it, but it ends up unforgettable. And, and I have to say that I didn't really experience the movie that way because I've seen it as a kid. And so when you're a kid, you're immune to all that, the, yeah. all the force field stuff that pushes adults out because you just accept it as a holiday classic. And it's funny because you said slow burn because it doesn't become a farce. So uh, one of our favorite phrases from this podcast is on paper. On paper, if you had told me what this was about, and, and just for the listeners out there, Mike told me nothing about it. He actually texted me, watch it immediately. So that's what I did. I, I, that day I sat and watched it and I didn't read anything about it. I just watched it. 
on paper, this should be a farce. You have all these these faked identities and, and you would think, okay, halfway through the film, then there's going to be seven people living there. Then there'll be 10 people living there. Then there'll be 30 people living there. And that'll be the problem. And there'll be a lot of slamming doors and wacky mix-ups, but it's not. It's, it's, it's the movie kind of reaches its critical mass once you get the, the families of the soldiers living there with their kids. And, and then that's about it. And then it goes somewhere else. So it is funny how on, it should be sillier than it is, but it's not silly. Well, because you know what the rules of a farce are. It's only a farce as long as nobody gets hurt. And of course, there, you know, this isn't my moment, but I'll cheat and take a bonus moment, which is that there's the moment when they're sitting around at dinner and they're talking about the people who own the house, the O'Connors, who, who are, of course, there, you know, the, the butler and the maid that are that are sitting there. Um, you know, and there's a moment when he says something about Michael O'Connor and what nahole he is. Yeah. And then Mrs. O'Connor is laughing and he turns and you know, Aloysius T. Yeah, uh, McKeever. McKeever talks about uh, talks about her and how she lives in Florida and she doesn't care, uh, you know, about anything. And she just goes to the beautician, tries to make herself look. Clean. And the first time he says it, it's funny. Farce is achieved on the first joke. By the fourth joke, uh, it's it's, it's become unbelievably relentless. Yeah, and you you couldn't you wouldn't be able to sit there if it were ten or eleven. And so, thankfully, the movie knows where your limit is and pushes you about a few feet past it and then calls it quits. And it does something interesting too, is that when, when, when the real O'Connor comes in, because you, I, I didn't know if I was going to meet him in the movie. I really didn't. We're just told, Oh, this is when you get the tour bus and we're told who O'Connor is and they speak about him. I'm like, okay, is this going to be like, we just, we just hear about him. But then when he comes into the film and then when his wife comes into the film, um, I found, I found them a very interesting couple and they were interesting to watch. And it was interesting to, to for them when they have their talk about why they got divorced and, and, and why they were separated. Those things. I, I, all of a sudden I'm like, wait a minute. Like, I didn't think the movie was going to go down this, this street. It's so much, their love is so much more believable because in a farce, when two people are in love, they can make each other laugh, but they very rarely make each other actually cry. Right. And th- there's a moment where it looks like they've gotten back together and you think that the movie must be about to be over it must be over five minutes from now and then they have one more breakup and then they get back together one more time right you you wouldn't have you wouldn't have thought it's it's kind of like a clown car structure where people people and events just keep getting out of the car and you're like how many are in there and it just never stops until all of a sudden very abruptly at the moment when you could wish that it were not over or you've gotten used to its relentlessness it just kind of sends you back out into the world and it ends So welcome back. In part two, we always talk about our favorite moment or a moment that we think indicates the experience of seeing the film as a whole. Mike, what's yours? There are kind of two kinds of comedy in this movie. One is laugh comedy. It's the comedy that you're thinking of, like something like the the Marx Brothers or, or anarchic comedy. Uh, and then the other kind of comedy is uh, what I would call like wholesome comedy or like or smile comedy. Like most of the time, this this movie just wants you to smile. It doesn't necessarily want you to laugh out loud. But there's a weird moment um, when the the t- when the two of them go out on a date uh, to the little restaurant. They go to the Italian Mexican place, uh, which is supposed to be a joke. And uh, the waiter uh, is trying to fix the wobbly table for that them. And, he, and he's everywhere. Like he's all of a sudden Harpo marks out of everywhere, and you're not sure what universe you're in. Um, th- that just there's a there's a technique in this movie which is just to throw everything at the wall and see what sticks mm-hmm. and that um is the moment for me when the movie gets really good this movie is like an a minus all the way through and then it's an a plus for the last 25 minutes and the thing that kicks it off 
is when whoever was writing the screenplay or decided to leave the scene in just just found a comic genius, found that it didn't kind of fit with the rest of the movie and left it. Yeah, because I thought the same thing. I smiled the whole movie. But then when the waiter bit happened with the wobbly table, I found myself really laughing. And I wondered to myself, did somebody just have this? What did did, did somebody say, you know, we're putting this in there because it's funny, because, again, on paper, it almost doesn't belong in the movie. It, it almost doesn't. It doesn't belong in the movie, but it's really funny. And you can see, like, you can see somebody say, "No, I don't care. This is really funny. I'm putting it in." No, uh, I think that the movie, the movie is funny the same way that um, people now like a like a show like Shit's Creek or something because uh -huh. it's supposed to be wholesome. It's like value comedy where where people start to discover stuff about themselves, and because they feel good, you feel good. Um, but yeah, it's like they wandered from another set and they ended up on a set yeah. from the Marx Brothers. Um, but genius is just genius. And they decided to leave it. And I'm so glad that they did because that is such a great scene. Okay. So what's your moment? You know how much I love Victor Moore. You know how much I love make way for tomorrow. We did a whole episode on that. Um, you love imitating him. If you want to give us a few lines of Victor Moore, could you please? I don't. A couple of old fashioned for a couple of old fashioned people. <laughs> You have to see this movie, folks, because that is spot on. Anyway, I think he's great. And I was so pleased to see him in this movie. What my moment is, is when first, let, let me lead into it. I was originally struck, uh, struck me as so funny that when he lives there for the winter, he also wears their clothes and, and, and puts on all the things and walks around with a cigar and, and gets himself all, all dressed up. I, I think that that's great. So my moment is when they're, they're having dinner and he says, um, the essence, and I can't do it as well as Mike can, but he says, the essence of business is to never put one worry ahead of another. That's my moment because not only does he live there and pretend to be O'Connor, he adopts what he thinks is the personality of a rich person. So, you know, Tevye sings, if I were a rich man. So this is this is this guy's imagination of what it would be like to be Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or something where your idea is you walk around with a cigar all the time and you just say these maxims. You just make these aphorisms. Now that aphorism means nothing. It doesn't mean anything. It's, it's like a, it's like something like who moved my cheese or some bad piece of business advice. But the point is he's adopted this persona where he just starts to go around and, and, and believe almost his own BS. Um, like when he's given O'Connor, you know, you should take a bath or, you know, you haven't made your bed yet today. Although, I mean, the, the advice is the advice is a little too close. Like we don't have to get into um, uh, contemporary liquidity uh, requirements <laughs> for banks, but there's a reason uh, that the government mandates that they keep a certain amount of cash on hand. It's because they sometimes don't let the cares of tomorrow uh, trouble them today, right? Some, sometimes they do make they, they do make a bid uh, that that they can't that they can't cash but in. But wishes T. McKeever doesn't know that he's just reciting things he's heard. He's he's saying slogans. Yeah, no, I agree with you, but he didn't necessarily overhear the wrong thing because the the interesting thing with the clothes is that if I had written this movie. Uh, he would be a little too fat for the clothes or they would be a little too loose on him. That's not what the movie says. The movie says that they fit perfectly. Yeah. In fact, they fit a little too well, um, which, you know, the, the question, the question there is, um, is, are you a great businessman because of, because of the clothes? Now he would, now Michael O'Connor would say, no, it's like sweat and hard work and it's the 35 right. years or whatever that I put into it. And I, I get, I get where you're coming from, but it, um, it's, there's a very interesting thing and I, I'm not necessarily sure that the movies kind of spelled it all out or played it all out, but he's not, he's not, not wrong. 
Okay, I'll give you that. He, he's not that wrong, but he does act like an a-hole walking around with his cigar. I think, you know what he acts like, Mike? You ready for this? He walks around like he owns the place. That's exactly what he does. He walks around like he owns the place. And that's why I think he's an interesting character, because I think when he starts giving other characters grief for not making their bed or not acting in a certain way, part of you wants to turn around and say, this isn't even your house. You're like a squatter. But at the same time, you're, you're, you have an interesting relationship with him. I mean, clothes make the man. And that's exactly what we see going on here. So welcome back. In part three, we talk about the ending or the title. Mike, go. Sure. So, okay. One quick point and then a longer point. Here's here's the quick point. Let's just get the obvious model for understanding Aloysius T. McKeever out of the way. And then I think it's clear that if you've solved McKeever, you've solved the movie. Okay. Right. So there's a, a, a fat guy who goes around on the holidays. He breaks into your house. You know, he makes himself at home. And then if you allow this to happen, or you're okay and you become part of the process of this happening, he gives you some kind of gift and he leaves you a richer man than you were before. So he's right. That's why I said some, the first part. That's why I said right. it's got the Santa Claus motif in it. Right. So, some kind of strange um, Santa Claus, uh, you know, slash God slash something weird. And so there, the, the question is um, how ironical is McKeever, not in the sense of the irony of the things that he says, but how aware is he? of the way that he comes off to other characters. I think, I think ostensibly you're supposed to believe not very aware, um, but he kind of flies in and out of their lives like Mary Poppins at exactly the right moment. Well, that's um, why which, at the end he says, everything is just as we found it. We left everything just as we found it, which is both true and not true. It's true physically for the house, but the people are different. The people of the people's lives have been improved through their, through their contact with him. So everything's not the, everything's better than he found it. Another interesting thing is I thought the same way that you thought, which is the movie could go one direction, which is first you have 30 people, then you have 60 people, then you have 90 people. But of course, that that makes it unmanageable, right, as a film to have, yeah. to have 90 people because you can't form a close relationship with that many people at the same time, right? So there's there's a big empty house and you kind of belong there, but you have to sneak there when you go back and you gather with like, let's say 14 to 15 people max and they all know each other and they kind of look the same as they did last year, but a little different and you kind of, you have to deal with them. And, and I, there's something about this movie, which I think is taking the model of a family or dealing with family at the holidays and not in a sentimental way, uh, right? Your family is the people who say things that can hurt you. Your people is the family that in, enrich your lives. Like Michael O'Connor has surrounded himself with people who, who are like literally, Farrell. right. Who are literally yes men. And they just ride around in limousines, like eating liver sandwiches right. and, and trying to make business deals while he's pretending to be the butler. And so there's, um, there's something kind of actually I find deeply unsentimental about this movie and, and headed more towards sentiment or real emotion, which is that they're never comfortable in conjunction with one another as a family, but they do sort of start to construct themselves um, as in a kind of double patriarch role with McKeever and then with O'Connor still sitting there. The GIs living out of their cars are much more comfortable with each other and in their own skin than people like O'Connor, who has to call the finishing school to find out why Trudy ran away. Until he changes his clothes. Like I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to ride the former point too hard, but when, but when they, but when they change clothes, they start to transform. It's like trading places with Eddie Murphy. I mean, that's that, that, or Brewster's millions or, you know, it's that same kind of idea. You know, I I don't know how much you take it. Uh, I'm not sold on it like as an allegory or even as a working metaphor, but it it seems interesting to me that the movie wants to just stick with enough people 
that you could interact with or care about or pay attention to um, are arranged in, in kind of the, in little family models, right? It's like, it's like different branches of a family all, yeah. all getting, all getting together. Uh, but at the same time, it's, it's deeply uncomfortable, right? And, and it makes comedy out of that. But some of the comedy is painful, like the moment when, uh, when he goes up the stairs and he sees his two army buddies and they're yeah. applying for an apartment. And he says, Hey, congratulations, guys. I just saw the missus. And it turns out they're, you know, when they find out that they're married and have children, they won't rent the apartment to them. Which is, of course, done by the guy from It's a Wonderful Life who will not, who, no children, no children. He's the guy that comes to see Potter about his plans for, uh, for George Bailey's um, new development of houses. Speaking of houses, that's what the, you know, it's funny that the centerpiece of this movie is a big house. And going on what you said about families, right? This movie's about people trying to find a home. So what is that home going to be? That's why the whole plot is, of course, to take Camp Kelson this army barracks and turn into a home. We're going to take the swords and turn them into plowshares, right? We're going to, we're going to, we're going to, we, everyone's got to have a place to go. And what you just said reminded me of death of a hired man, death of the hired man by Robert Frost, right? So in that poem, there's two definitions of home, right? One is um, home is the place where when you have to go there, they have to take you in. But the, but the better version, the version, the version that the, the old lady says in the poem is home is something you don't have to deserve. You don't have to deserve it, right? So this movie is about a bunch of people who think we shouldn't have to deserve a home. Like we, you know, this movie's made in in 47, it was. Yeah, 47. So the war's just over, right? But we can't find a place to live. And everyone's in the movies talking about the housing shortage, the housing shortage, right? But that's a, it's a natural need. Again, going back to its wonderful life, um, when George's father says it's a normal thing that for a man to want to have a roof over his head. And in this movie, you have the most spectacular roof over people's heads. You have a roof over people's heads that's so spectacular that there's bus tours given about it, but the people under that roof aren't happy. I know. I, I think that that's, that's 100% spot on. But then the other interesting thing is that, okay, now that you do have a home and you, you are with the people you love and you do relate to them, they have enough influence on you and in you to hurt you. I, I think that the whole dinner scene when they're together on New Year's Eve and they have to leave tomorrow is, is very indicative of the difference between sentiment and sentimental, because I think that the point that you're talking about starts in sentimentality, but it, but it ends in true sentiment. Because if you go through that pain, though, you, I feel like the people in this movie love each other than people in other movies what, where, where, things, where things just come together because they haven't insulted each other. They haven't hurt each other. And not, not that those are requisite, but there's something a little bit more real about the things that are being said uh, at their table versus other movies. But none of those other movies that live in sentiment end as happily. And so this movie really deserves a happy ending and it gets a happy ending. All right. And there's our ending. So thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back next time with another big Christmas movie that you've all, or actually a movie that you've all seen. This movie might be a sleeper, but we promise to end the season on a film you've all seen. So thanks for listening, everybody. Please follow us on Twitter at 15MINFilm and uh, leave us a review wherever you get your podcast. We're really grateful. See you next time.